hello and welcome everybody. My name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. Today we're very, very fortunate to have my friend and colleague Eduardo Meisler from Argentina. Uh, welcome, Eduardo. We hope you enjoy our interesting and informative discussion around some of the latest data in rheumatology. Um, Eduardo, today we're going to be talking about your recently published paper, which is looking at the impact of initial therapy with upadacitinib or adalimumab on the achievement of 48-week treatment goals in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which is a post hoc analysis from the Select Compare study. Let's start by you telling us a little bit about yourself, Eduardo. What, what's your background and where are you working? Hi, hi, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you guys today. I, I work in Argentina. I was trained in the US for many, many years. I was an attending over there. And then I returned and I am a director of a clinical research center. It's basically a research center that we focus on 10 different specialties, most of them chronic diseases with requirement of uh, chronic medication for autoimmune and other chronic conditions. I am also uh, the chairman of the rheumatology department, but, uh, but I am now overseeing the whole research. You know, I've been really trying to focus myself all the time in the new treatments for rheumatoid arthritis. How can we improve the care of these patients and how can we really meet the unmet needs that the, all these patients have, which is taking care of the pain, treatment that actually will improve these patients earlier and more efficaciously than the previous treatments, which clearly have made a major impact in the patients, as you know, Peter. Yeah. So thank you very much. And um, the Jack um, class now has had a little bit of controversy after oral surveillance. So can you tell us what's happening with Jacks in Argentina? What kind of market share they might have, just roughly? And did oral surveillance make an impact on prescribing? So uh, clearly oral surveillance made an impact in the physician's impression more than the prescription. Uh, still, I mean, tofacitinib, which was the first one that was uh, approved in Argentina, and that's actually 10 years ago, nine and a half years ago. So we actually had tofacitinib with the FDA approval for a long, long time, different from Europe. Um, the experience has been excellent, and it has taken a big chunk of the market being oral and being very efficacious. Since oral surveillance, uh, we did not have the change in the label because uh, they were able to change for whatever magic way, the label to the to EMA label. Uh, so there was no requirement from the Argentinian regulatory agency until today to change to after TNF failures. Uh, for RA clearly, we're not talking about PSA or AS. Uh, but clearly, in the minds of the physicians, and that was your main question, Peter, there has been uh, a perception that they need more data. At least in our country, the Jacks used to have about 25% of market share for rheumatoid in particular, and 30% of uh, NTXIR patients went straight to a Jack and 30% of TNFIR went straight to a jack. So, and there has been a small fall off over time with that. There's, there's tended to be a move to upadacitinib away from Barry and Topa. Is that a similar thing that you're seeing in Argentina? This, and because then we can talk about jack one selectivity if you think it's actually gonna be a difference. Well, you know, Argentina is very unique uh, now that you ask me because 
Argentina was one of the first countries to acquire TOFA after, I, mean, I think it was the second or the third country in the world after the US approval. So the patent, which is shorter in Argentina, expired last year. So now we have generic versions of TOFA. Now, interesting in Argentina, the generic market is not like the US. So the prices did not go down so much and they're not so different from the biosimilars. So the first thing that we need to mention is this is the first country that Jack, a Jack inhibitor became generic. Uh, the problem with the generics in Argentina is that they have not gone through bioequivalence testing. So in a, in a drug with such a narrow margin of efficacy that you think on the phase two, three milligrams were not effective, three milligrams twice a day, I mean, and then 10 milligrams twice a day was clearly more toxic or had more adverse events, uh, you, you wonder why not having a bioequivalence. And now Colombia is requiring and Mexico is requiring are the next two Latin American countries which the patent will expire. And they actually have in their bylaws that TOFA will require bioequivalence. So in Argentina, the doctors have been moving exactly, that's why I'm answering this long way, uh, as you pointed out, they're moving much more to upadacitinib because they are very concerned about these kind of generic versions of tofacitinib that there are in the market right now. I mean, eight of them. So they don't know which one the patient is getting, which one is a good one, which one is a bad one. Um, so there is an issue of clearly they understand selectivity being important, but also there is an issue of marketing that they want to prescribe what they feel is comfortable, knowing that the drug that they are prescribing is the drug that has all the clinical trials behind that. Excellent. So just your comments on the FDA ruling, all jacks, all indications are going to wind up TNF-IR. What do you think? What do you think of that ruling in particular? Uh, as, as you know, you know, we're both part of the EULAR guidelines, EULAR recommendations. Uh, and I, I, I'm clearly against, uh, first of all, the ruling. I'm against their understanding of the ruling. And let me let me say very quickly why. Suddenly, we forgot that registries are important. I mean, TOFA has been in the Australian market, in the Swiss market, in the American market, forget Latin America, for 10 years. Now, we have all these registries not showing exactly what oral surveillance is showing. But we have, on the other hand, the registries that show, like the German registry, that show an tiny increase in perforations with interleukin-6, and we believe that. We have the Spanish registry showing very early on that we have an increase on tuberculosis because of TNF. So we believe in the registries on those days. Suddenly now, we do not believe in the registry anymore. <laughs> the rabbit registry has just, just at Euler last in Denmark, just showed us that there was clearly no increase in the rabbit data in um, events, cardiovascular events or maze events in general. Now, again, we don't believe in the, in now in the rabbit. We believe when it was against interleukin-6, but now when it's not in favor of what the FDA is perceiving from the clinical trial. And then my second comment about oral surveillance to the audience, I'm thinking, you are telling me, you are convincing me that a trial of 1,300 patients per arm suddenly shows increase in mace, BTE, and malignancies? 
and we never realize that because if you peter have shown me that increases one of them i would have said well you know we missed it it could have happened now the drug is so bad that five milligrams twice a day increases all the three major endpoints of the trial wouldn't you think it's more reasonable to think that something skewed the population to be more <laughs> severe in one arm against the other one which will make much more sense in a trial that you don't have a placebo arm to compare so in between those two um points my my take on oral surveillance and my take on the fda is clearly they move too fast too far and uh we need to scale back clearly what you recommendations i think it's appropriate assess your patient think who is your patient advise your patient and then work on a shared decision with your patient excellent so now i'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball because the australian tga or pbac are going to copy fda i suspect they're just doing a review and we'll end up tnfir what do you think the EMA review will show in your crystal ball, Eduardo? Well, I have a crystal ball and I have some data. I know two things are happening. One, they had a meeting last week uh, with the three companies together, uh, Pfizer, Abby, and um, Lilly. And they presented them data on all the registries, all the data to EMA. Uh, and three different experts, one from GI, one from DERM, and one from ROOM. And EMA listened very carefully to that, the CHMP. Uh, we'll see what the recommendation is, and then we'll see what the regulators are, are doing. Uh, nowadays, regulators are more scared that uh, on safety than concerned about efficacy. Uh, and they really think that they are there to save us from all the bad things in the world. Instead of allowing physicians uh, to work with their patients to understand the, the safety, the toxicity. I mean, Peter, we talk about this multiple times. You know, aspirin will not be in the market and if it was tried to be approved today. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, I think if I look at my, uh, in my ball, I think IMA will be a little more reasonable. I think IMA will, um, will not put it on after, uh, TNF inhibitors, TNF. Uh, I think they will uh, advise on patients above 65 uh, or patients with a lot of risk factors to be after TNF. Yeah. But to put every yeah. single patient after TNF, a 40-year-old male uh, who never smoke and exercises three times a week, <laughs> what's the risk of that patient? And what about the monotherapy market? What are they going to say about that? They have to go to a TNF as well. Yeah, anyway. which we know works much worse. <laughs> All right, so thank you for your comments. I appreciate them. Can we talk a little bit about this paper? Um, can you tell us about the select compare study for those that one person in rheumatology who doesn't know the select compare trial? Well, the select compare trial was a unique trial, Peter, because as you know, it was a trial that had three arms, uh, a placebo arm, which was metotrexate, and two arms, which was the upadacitinib plus metotrexate, and the other arm was adalimumab plus metotrexate, which made a unique trial uh, was that you could actually, if you did not achieve a 20% improvement in your joint count, which will mean tender or swelling, you were able to move to a different arm. Uh, so if you were with ADA, you will move to UPA. If you were with UPA, you move to ADA. If you were in placebo, 
uh, you move to UPA, which makes it unique because usually that doesn't happen. You always move to the study drug. You move in this case to UPA. Uh, at week 24, if you have not achieved a CDI of less than 10, so low disease activity, uh, you will also change to UPA or ADA, so mean the other drug. So as you can see, it was, in a, was this kind of idea of treat to target. It was not exactly treat to target, it was almost very close to treat to target, what we do after 12 weeks if you don't improve, and then you move on and on to a different drug. So this allows us to assess in a totally new way uh, how these patients respond. And for the first time, how, what happens if you fail uh, a, a JAK inhibitor? What happens if you want to move to a TNF? Because until today, with Vari and Tofa, we did not have any data on JAK inhibitors' failure and moving them to a TNF or any other drug for the case being. Now, clearly, you understand why. I mean, clearly, it was a great design, but we, you understand, or the audience understands, that this could be done because they own UPA and they own uh, Humira. They own yeah. So it was, in a way, they could do it. But, but it's still excellent idea, excellent trial. Uh, and they were very good in the design of the trial. They really asked us to participate in the design of the trial. So that actually was very helpful because we were able to have all these multiple information. We have two primary endpoints on for the Americans ACR20 and for the um, Europeans for EMA was it was a DAS remission of 2.6 or less. Uh, but also there were a lot of secondary endpoints and they were all I, I mean look for hierarchy analysis. So you need to achieve the first one to go to the second to go to the third and that was actually very good. And in those endpoints there was a non-inferior endpoint and if you reach non-inferior, you can look at superiority. And was very impressive because in the trial, all the primary and all the secondary endpoints were accomplished. Uh, and there was a clear superiority of adalimumab against um, of so against, against adalimumab in multiple things, in changing pain, in changing hack, and in ACR50. So, what you can see here that there was a different significant difference in DAS remission, in CDI remission, in Boolean remission. So this was very important and crucial because for the first time, there was not only one endpoint that you reach in superiority, you just got it and you didn't get any other one of them. You got all of the endpoints, all the endpoints of superiority. And that was actually the great thing about this trial is that we went on to 26, but then it goes on to 48, but it will go to five years. So for the first time, you have a long-term clinical trial that compares one drug against the other, uh, and we'll see what is going on with the patients who remain on UPA and what's going on in the patients who remain on Adalimumab. And that's almost like um, the surveillance. Um, you got a TNF and methotrexate, which you basically call the gold standard. And for the second time in history, something's beaten the gold standard. And they had that methotrexate arm for placebo arm for a long time. And that gave him the opportunity to, to balance adverse events like VTEs out and whatever. So that was very nice. So tell us a little bit about this particular trial. Actually, before I say that, I was fascinated by that superiority. It was not driven by swollen joints. It was driven by pain, physician global. It was driven by the differences in... in uh, in physician global, patient global pain, and the JAK seemed to have this 
pain effect. Now, they don't cross the blood-brain barrier, so it's got to be a peripheral nervous system effect. And there's a paper, I think, coming up at uh, ACR with Barry looking at inhibition of dorsal root ganglion from Jack's. So what do you make of this pain story and whether we could use it for other pain conditions? Well, I just gave a lecture to Dominican Republic two hours ago. Uh, clearly, the unmet need of the patient is nowadays pain and fatigue. Patients get into this loop of more pain, more depression, more pain, and more fatigue. Uh, we need to cut that. And one of the requests of the patient, one of the things the patients really want is for these drugs to work clearly for pain, but fast. And that's actually with all the jugs. And now really it's all the jugs. And you have seen the data that we published on our strategy. And there is data from Peter Taylor on, on baricitinib and the data on UPA, which you are an author in many of them, uh, these papers, Peter, uh, that clearly pain is one of the major advantages. But I want to go back to your comment, how important is what you're commenting about being superior on many things and not just dust when you because people will look at Jackson and will say, well, clearly this is an interleukin-6 inhibitor. It will reduce CRP. So clearly, well, it was an expected thing to, they will do better. But this, that's why I mentioned, it was superior on the CDI and it was superior on, on the bullying remission. So there is no doubt that it's just not only moved by the CRP, but by joint pain and by the physician assessment, by pain, all those things, in combination were better and this actually is part of what with why we decided to do this new paper trying to analyze what we call deep remission uh trying to see can we achieve a full as much remission as possible in in in, in one trial so what were the methods of this particular paper what did what did you do in this paper again trying to to analyze in the same way with the idea of treat to target and we, with the same idea we what we decided was to see what happens if the patients uh if you analyze all the patients who started on upa on patients who started on adalimumab and you follow them through until 48 weeks uh, and see was what happened open label at, it, it was post hoc but was it open label at that stage uh was it at that stage is not it's still blinded uh, until 48 weeks, it's, it's still blinded, but it's um, so it's, it's blinded. But I was going to make another comment and it slipped my mind. Uh, so uh, what 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 we wanted to really see is what happens if you start the patients initially on UPA or if you start your patient on Adalimumab. So what happens after 48 weeks? Who has done better later on? Remember, in this trial, you did treat to target, and so many of the patients were switched, but you want to analyze everybody as the drug you started. Now, clearly 39% of the patients randomized to UPA switched to Adalimumab, and 49% of patients randomized to ADA switched to UPA. So at week 48, similar proportion of patients initially randomized to OPA or Adalimumab therapy achieved CDI remission, DAS-28. However, Patients initially randomized to UPA demonstrate improvement more quickly than those randomized to Adalimumab by week 12. For instance, 41% achieved CDI remission compared to 30% on Adalimumab. So 41 on UPA, 30 
with uh, adalimumab. That shows you an 11% difference on one group against the other, achieving early on uh, CDI remission. The time needed for a 25% of patients achieving CDI remission was also shorter among the patients randomized to UPA versus adalimumab, 18 weeks against 26 weeks. And the median time for CDI low disease activity was four weeks earlier. So clearly, this shows you that patients randomized to UPA spend longer time in remission. Yeah, and the CDI remission was 19% at time of 48 weeks compared to 14 of those initially with adalimumab. So all this data uh, goes into the direction that the earlier you get into remission, the more area under the curve you have uh, in being in remission. And if we remember that cardiovascular events happen, not so much as the Mayo Clinic showed five or seven years ago, seven years ago, to be precise, uh, not so much on the time, the duration of your arthritis, but how long you are on non-remission, how long are you active, being more time in remission is crucially, crucially important. Okay, so those, those results are very nice. There was no loss of effect over time. There wasn't any tachyphylaxis, even on the adalimumab side. No, so no tachyphylaxis. It was maintained, yeah. It was it maintained. Was maintained. So you've and got actually, nice... Yeah nice efficacy and what about the safety side of the equation the safety side of the equation was also very good uh there was no difference in 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 safety between the adalimumab and upadacitinib few cases few uh, expected cases of the severe adverse events no frequency of maze or bte nothing that actually was predictable again i want to re-emphasize oral surveillance is a very peculiar population very early population, high risk population, and a lot of data that we don't know, like how much these patients smoke, what was the PACS per year, who was a type 1 diabetes and who was a type 2 diabetes, all that information we don't know. And just the last comment I want to make about the trial, uh, we define, Peter, what we call deep response, which is CDI less than 2.8, CDI remission, HAC of less than 0.5, and pain, going back to your comment, less than 20. And in that, the difference was clearly significant in favor of upadacitinib, 18% versus 13% at week 48. So there were no clear predictors who are the ones who will respond better than the other, and that was the PD because it would have been great to know who responds better, and we are still looking for those biomarkers that will tell us which one is the patient who will respond better to one drug or the other. That would have been great. We could not still identify that. But there is no doubt that if you start UPA as you, after you fail methotrexate, the probability that you will actually end up in remission early on is higher, that you will, let, you will need less time to achieve remission, and you will have a higher probability of being in deep remission. Still, adalimumab is a great drug. Still, TNF inhibitors are great drugs, and you achieve, at the end of the day, almost similar remission rate uh, in one arm or the other. So let me be absolutely clear on that. Uh, there's no difference if you start one drug or the other at the end of the day in remission because both are fantastic drugs. But if you need early aggressive treatment because your patient is requiring that, this data, this post hoc analysis is showing you very nicely that using a JAK inhibitor, in this case, upadacitinib, allows you to achieve that earlier on. So that's a 
great take-home message for the audience, the numerical difference? The 1813 was nominal p-value of 0 0.0, I mean, 0 0.049, so less than 0 0.05. So it was statistical, uh, but as you know, this is a post hoc analysis. So, you know, we it's should take difficult. that with it's a ground difficult. of salt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we we need to. Uh, you clearly will need to do a trial with that in mind after you have done a, a <coughs> post analysis. Can we prove this deep remission uh, in a real clinical trial? Uh, and if you can do that, then I think we really need to start rethinking the guidelines because if all the recommendations and the guidelines are evidence-based, and we need to know which drug we should use first or second, why are we waiting to use a jack inhibitor on somebody? Let's let's even take oral surveillance as the as the law of the land. Why are we discussing somebody who is 40 and has no cardiovascular risk if you have data showing earlier, more aggressive, and better efficacy without any difference in safety? So we need to really look at the data as the data comes and really start thinking: is does this apply to everybody? Uh, are these regulators overstepping in their power and not letting us actually treat patients accordingly, even if you take oral surveillance as it is? There was nobody in the oral surveillance who could get in the trial if they were below 50, if they did not have cardiovascular risk factors. So a 52-year-old male who never smoked, never had hypertension, exercises, is in the perfect weight, and actually uh, has array, he doesn't qualify for oral surveillance. Yes. So, and I think that's a, that's an interesting point. If you try and pick out the oral surveillance patients out of the select compare study, when we've requested that, we've been told there's not enough to make it statistically meaningful. Is that correct? It, that's absolutely correct. But as you know, Peter, as well as I know, there is talks about doing an oral surveillance analysis of all the UPA data and all the Barry data. And the second thing that the audience should know, I'm sorry, it will take some time, but there are two trials which are combined, the RA bridge, uh, the RA branch done in between Europe and the US, uh, trying to identify as a primary the endpoint. Barry trials. The Barry, the Barry trials. trials, exactly. BT with the primary endpoint and uh, MACE as a secondary endpoint. But those trials, which are going to be, as I said at the beginning, sorry for that, but it's going to be read in 2024, 25, and it will take so long because you know what's happening? They're not getting cases. These are high-risk patients, high-risk patients. They're not getting many cases. So the reality that we are seeing is that the number needed to harm, it's 1,500, and I'm sorry for the New England Journal, and I really like the New England Journal, but they requested from the authors the number needed to harm for five years. I challenge the people listening to this to go to the internet and look to number need to harm five years. It just doesn't exist. It was not created. It's, it's, a, it's, just, it's not a real creation. It's not a statistical method. You have number need to harm or not number need to harm. So what are you going to do? Every six years, every seven, every three? Uh, <laughs> how do you make that, that decision? Uh, so in, in the number need to harm, the real one, it's so high. It's 1,500. So you're saying, even in that comparison, how frequent are we discussing these issues in this very high risk population? And that's what the 
the virus Sydney people are finding out that it's hard to get they're hard to get these cases. Good point. Okay, I really like your concept that we should develop a pain CDI hack combined endpoint. I think that's a very worthwhile consideration. And just to finish with, any final comments? You you given us the take home message. Tell us the take home message again. And uh, uh, for the for the practicing rheumatologists, what can they take home from this particular trial? Well, from this trial, they should take that you starting opalacitinib early on allows you to reach CDI remission much earlier, and you don't have CRP there. So achieving remission earlier, achieving remission faster, and allowing the patient to be happier and carrying the loop of chronic pain much faster. Both drugs are great drugs. Both drugs are very safe. Uh, and we have been using both drugs now for years, uh, UPA for some three years, Adalimumab for 20 years, but other drugs also for more than 10 years. And again, clearly my message is identify your patient understand which patient you're talking about because you may not be using a drug that could be the most suitable drug for your individual patient which could have not qualified for any of these trials that we are discussing and you may restricting the opportunity to patient to achieve remission faster because of one trial of 1300 patients per arm excellent thank you i, I forgot to mention that in the switch study that was part of this there was no safety penalty without a washout for those rumors who, who need to think about switching. So thank you so much, Eduardo. It was very informative, very educational. I hope the audience enjoyed uh, our discussion. I thank you again for your time. I know how busy you are. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the other media podcast media that you use. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. And we greatly appreciate your time and trouble, Eduardo. It has been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Peter. And thank you very much for <laughs> calling me. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you.